scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of, of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Let's pray together before we endeavor to receive God's word this morning. Father, please help us to receive your word as your word. Help us to respond to it submissively, obediently, in humility and worship before you. And let it not just be as the words of a man. Thank you for giving us this passage, this history of you and your dealings with your people. Thank you for calling us into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ where we we can get to know you through passages like this. Thank you. And please speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I want you to do something for me before we begin, and you may want to write it down or you can just keep it in your mind, but I want you to answer this question or fill in this blank. God is pleased with me when I, and then fill in the blank, and just keep it to yourself. You can have it in your mind or you can write it down. God is pleased with me when I What comes to mind? You can just put down your first reaction. Nobody's going to look at it unless your neighbor is nosy. I saw Karen peeking over at Steve. It's just between you and the Lord and, and for your own thought process. God is pleased with me when I what? After a lot of prayer and consideration, I've decided to take us into Genesis for the fall. You know, I like to work through books of the Bible, and uh, each summer we return to 1 Corinthians and spend time there moving forward. And uh, leading into Christmas time and Easter, we return to the book of Mark and we move forward. And at the beginning of the year, we return to Proverbs. And we just sort of move our way forward in these different books of the Bible, taking in God's word as God has laid it out. He laid it out in books. And in the fall, there's always little leeway of what we might do. And I've really been praying about it. And for whatever reason, God knows, and I don't, uh, he really drew me to the book of Genesis, Uh, but not at Genesis 1. I've actually preached Genesis 1, 2, and 3 before years ago, Um, and I know that we're familiar with those chapters. That's very common. Those are common chapters of the Bible. So are Genesis 4 and on too, but I just felt inclined to start at Genesis 4, and we'll get as far as we get this fall. We enter at Genesis 4, and we see ancient history. It's a history book, the book of Genesis. And it's a history of God and how he has been toward his people. 
And so for us, it'll be a journey of getting to know God better, observing how he has been, how his character has displayed itself in his dealings with his people. Have, have you ever run into an old friend of one of your parents who knew them way back and heard stories about your mom or your dad from way back? It helps you to gain a little bit broader perspective of them, doesn't it? Or stumbled upon a, a photo album in your attic of your parents way back. That's a little bit like what it is to read Genesis. We're just going to observe our God, our Father, the, the God that we were reconciled to through Jesus Christ in his dealings with his people. We're also going to gain a greater knowledge of our heritage as God's people. When you became a Christian, the Jewish heritage in history became your heritage in history as you were welcomed in to God's people through the new covenant. I think through this process, it'll help us to understand reality better, our own lives better. I think it's going to be really, really rich and really, really good. So we enter Genesis 4, what Will read for us, right after what's known as the fall. Not like autumn fall, but the fall of mankind when sin entered the world. And God pronounced consequences upon Adam and Eve, consequences that we're still suffering from today. And it began a cycle of sin and consequences, and then God redeeming and saving his people. Sin, consequences, God redeeming and saving his people. We saw one cycle already with Adam and Eve, and now we're going to see another cycle with the very next generation, Cain and Abel, their children. And we'll just sort of read the story together. And then I have one point to make at the end of it, just a one-point sermon for you today. I think we can handle that. So if we look at the story of Cain and Abel, which is told throughout the whole chapter, chapter 4, you can break it into scenes or acts, or, or if you think of it as like a book, if you got a book from the library and on the spine it said Cain and Abel, and it was the story of Cain and Abel, there would really only be three chapters to it. And we'll look at each of the three chapters in here, and then there's sort of an epilogue. You know that part of the book at the end kind of tells you what happened with people next. So there's four parts of the story, three chapters and an epilogue. Chapter 1 we'll call Offering and Response, and that's verses 1 through 5. Story begins, Adam and Eve have a baby. Some of you have had babies. Uh, It would have been basically the same for Adam and Eve, only without the hospital and doctors. They have a baby, and Eve makes a statement. And it's important for you to notice that Eve makes a statement after they have a baby because the whole story is bookended by Eve having a baby and making a statement. So let's look at her first statement, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So just kind of keep that statement in your mind because we'll return to it at the end. She had Cain and then she had Abel, verse 2. And again she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. So the first brothers recorded in history, Cain and Abel. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer, and they were brothers. Now, we're going to see their, their relationship was complicated. I mean, if you have siblings, maybe you have complicated relationships with your siblings. It might be helpful to know that from the very first Sibling relationship. Sibling relationships were complicated. So here's Adam 
I mean, I'm sorry, Cain and Abel, the first brothers. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So here, their work and their worship were all intertwined. Abel was a shepherd, and so when he brought an offering to the Lord, it was of his flock. And we get details about his offering. First, brought the fatty portions, the the good portions. Cain was a farmer, so he brought elements of his work. He brought produce from the ground. It doesn't elaborate on these things. The uh, sacrificial law hadn't been written yet, so uh, we don't know that it was essential that it be offerings from the flock and the ground specifically, or if it was because this is what their lives were about. Maybe if it were modern day and if Abel was someone who made bus routes for schools, maybe they would have brought a really well laid out bus route to the Lord. Maybe if Cain was a printer, maybe he would have brought a really nicely designed and printed brochure to the Lord. But their work was their offering, their worship. Their worship was their work. This is just how it was back at the very beginning. Cain, we don't get any detail about his offering. He just, he brings an offering from the fruit of the ground. Abel, we do get detail. Cain also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. I think there's something to the differences and descriptions of the two offerings because there's a distinction in how the Lord responds to the two offerings. So we've seen the offering. Let's look at the Lord's response. Second half of verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So two brothers, two offerings, one Lord, two different responses. For Abel and his offering, not just his offering, but for Abel himself, the Lord had regard. For Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, Insert yourself into the story here. Pretend you're Cain. How would you react to this? You and your brother come and you bring offerings, both from the work of your hands. The Lord clearly pleased with your brother's offering, your younger brother, but disregards your offering. Your offering doesn't move him in any way. How would you react? And this is a crucial question to understand this story in Cain. Because the whole rest of the story really focuses on Cain's reaction and the consequences of his reaction. So how would you react? Let's say your brother was a truck driver and he brought his truck route that he drove to the Lord. And the Lord said, that was good. That was good work, good offering. You did that to my glory, good. Let's say you're a student, though. Your brother gave his offering, the Lord regarded it. You bring your your schoolwork, a test you made an A on, and the Lord's unmoved. Now, as a parent, you know you don't do that to your kids. You know, if Elias and Lillian both bring me a drawing, I don't make a huge deal over one of them and then just ignore the other. So why does God, the perfect father, do this? And how would you react if you were Cain? Let's see how Cain did react. Second half of verse 5. So Cain was very angry. Cain was very angry. And his face fell. He was very angry and his face fell. 
Now, from here on in the story, Abel's barely mentioned. We'll see what happens to Abel, but it's all about Cain from here. So that concludes chapter 1, offering and response. Now we move to chapter 2, which I'll call the heart of the matter. That's verses 6 through 15. Cain is very angry. His face has fallen. He's dejected. The Lord has, has disregarded his offering, but accepted and embraced his brothers. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, the Lord goes and pursues Cain. He doesn't go toward Abel, the favored brother. He goes toward Cain, the angry, dejected brother. He says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. So here God, the perfect father. You can almost picture it like a father sitting on the side of the bed with his son, who his son had just stormed out of the room, angry, upset, maybe tears rolling down his cheek. And God, the Lord, as a, as a father, sitting beside Cain and saying, Cain, why are you acting this way? Why are you angry? Now, when the Lord asks us questions, it's not so that he can discover anything. He knows everything. When the Lord asks you a question, it's so that you can discover something. So in the Lord's questions to Cain here, we see the Lord's interpretation of what's going on. We see the heart of the matter. And he doesn't say to Cain, Cain, why did you bring me produce? He doesn't say anything about the offering. He doesn't say, Cain, why why did you offer the way you did? He doesn't say anything about the offering. He says, why are you angry? Now, we logically can see, well, he's angry because it's looked like you showed favoritism. But see, the Lord knows the hearts of man, and he knows there's something here. This is what he wants to address with Cain. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Ask yourself, why would a person get angry at the Lord disregarding his offering? What might that indicate in the heart of a person? Why not humility? Why not embarrassment? Why not shame? Why not regret? That's not what Cain experienced. He experienced anger and dejection. Why? That's what God's trying to get at. His conclusion, what he indicates is there, is sin. If you do not... If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So here's Cain brooding in his room, upset. The Lord, his father, comes to sort things out with him, doesn't address the offering, addresses Cain's heart, and says, Listen, Cain, you are on dangerous ground here. Sin is crouching at the door, wanting to devour you. And your anger and your dejection, your response to this is showing me that it may be getting the upper hand. Now, we've always had cats at the parsonage. We just, the Lord has provided us a steady stream of stray cats. And we just keep one at a time, and as soon as that one disappears or dies, another one shows up. And we'll get that one all fixed up at the vet and start taking care of that one. We have a cat now. His name is Peanut. He doesn't try to get into the house. These are outside cats. The cat we had before Peanut, uh, Issa, 
I think, was the cat right before Peanut. That we've had so many, I can't keep them straight. We had Issa. I think before that, we had a couple for a short period of time, and then we had one named Agent Kitty. Those are the main two I remember, Agent Kitty and Issa. So we'll talk about Issa, since that's the most recent. Fluffy cat, beautiful cat. Issa would sit at the kitchen door, outside the kitchen door, just waiting for her opportunity. And anytime we opened the kitchen door to go outside, Issa was in the house, to the back. She knew the good hiding spots. She'd get under our bed in the very center, so we'd have to have a broom handle or something to try to get her out. She was always crouching at the door, always crouching at the door. And it got to where, in our, just our muscle memory, that's how we exited the house. We'd open the door and shuffle out and close the door because we knew this cat was always crouching at the door. Its desire was to get into the house. So here's this lesson that God the Father is teaching Cain. Look, forget about the offering. Just don't even worry about the offering right now. I want to talk to you about something much more serious. Sin is here now because of your parents, because of Adam and Eve, what they did. They introduced into the world sin. Sin's pictured here almost like that cat, but, but worse, like a roaring lion is just crouching outside of your door, Cain. And his desire is for you. He is hungry for you. Sin wants to devour and destroy you. You're all angry about my response to your offering. What you don't realize is that you're about to be devoured. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Pay attention to your heart here, Cain. I don't just want you going through the motions of offerings to me. Sin is crouching at your door. Now, let's see how Cain responds to this, verse 8. Cain spoke to who? He's sitting on the bedside. The Lord, his father, is talking to him. But Cain doesn't respond to the Lord. He responds to his brother. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Sin had been crouching at the door. Sin was devouring Cain now. His anger and dejection at God turned into murder, the first recorded murder in Scripture of his own brother. How did he go from bringing his his crops, his produce, as an offering to the Lord to strangling or killing his brother in the field in such a short amount of time? Clearly, there was something wrong in Cain's heart. The Lord continues to pursue Cain. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Still going to Cain, asking questions, drawing Cain out. Where's your brother, Cain? Look at Cain's response. At least now he's responding to the Lord, but look at how he responds. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Anybody ever had a surly teenager? in your house before? Ever heard a response like this? I don't know. Is it my job to keep up with Abel? Am I the shepherd's shepherd? Talking to the Lord that way, can you imagine? 
more defiance. And finally, the Lord has had enough, verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. It's a curse very similar to that of his parents, Adam and Eve, what they experienced in their sin. He finally got Cain's attention with this. For the first time in verse 13, it changes, and Cain finally is talking to the Lord honestly for the first time. His response in verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now he's finally talking to the Lord, and it's too much for him. And then he outlines the curse, and it's interesting. He outlines some things that the Lord did say, and then he adds in some things that the Lord didn't say. Did you notice that? You're going to drive me from the ground. Yes, the Lord did say that. And my my face will be hidden from you. Well, the Lord didn't say anything about that. Maybe Cain just knew that that was implied. I don't know. It doesn't elaborate on that here. Cain says, I'm going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. Yes, the Lord did say that. Then he says, and I'll be killed by just the first person that comes along. I'll be killed. I just see in this the same thing that we see in ourselves and our children, our grandchildren. Finally, the punishment, the spankings, the timeouts, whatever, have gotten through. And then it's like an overreaction. Cain says, I'm just going to be killed, aren't I? The Lord says, no. Verse 13, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So this chapter ends. Sin, we've seen consequences now laid out again in this ever-recurring cycle with God's people. But the Lord is still there. He protects Cain by putting this mark on him. And then we enter the third chapter of the story, which we'll call Cain's lineage, verses 16 through 24. Cain leaves the Lord in verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And then life goes on for Cain, living under the curse, cursed from the ground, living as a wanderer and a fugitive. Life goes on. Central to being human is being fruitful and multiplying, especially at this stage of human history. So we see in verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he named, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Cain continues to be a productive human being. It's just central to who we are. We're always producing, cultivating, subduing, uh, having dominion over. It's just central to being made in God's image even under the curse, builds a city. I don't know what that would have looked like at this stage of human history. One thing implied here is that there were other people around. Cain got a wife somewhere. You know, the history of Genesis doesn't lay out everything comprehensively. It lays out what the Lord felt was priority for us to know. So there's a city. Cain's a city builder now, and he names it after his son Enoch. Life continues to go on, more multiplication and fruitfulness under the curse. We see now the lineage of Cain. Lineages are very important in Old Testament history because God promised 
that from the seed of Eve would come a Savior. And so it's always following lineages. And here we see Cain's. Since it's a short one, I'll read it. Verses 18 through 22. And just notice, you know, people are having babies, people are getting jobs, people are doing work, even under the curse. Verse 18. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. All those names are available, by the way. If you have children and you want to give them good, strong biblical names, all those names are available to you. Then verses 23 and 24, we get a zoomed-in glimpse at one part of the lineage of Cain. And I think it's just to show us how Cain's sin became hereditary for his people, for his family. Look at verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold, which is a hyperbole in Hebrew way of speaking. He's like, man, if you think Cain killed somebody, I killed somebody for far less. And if God's going to protect Cain, he's going to protect me even more. Just the presumptuousness of that, the pride and arrogance of that. That's the heritage and lineage of Cain. And that ends the story. And then we just have the epilogue left. Pretty hopeless ending right there. The epilogue, however, cracks the door for hope. Verses 25 and 26. Another baby and another statement. Remember, we began the story with a baby and a statement from Eve. Remember her statement at the beginning? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, just... Observe the contrast between those two statements. At the beginning of this tragic brotherhood, these tragic children, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Who's the driver in that scenario? Eve. And then at the end, after this horrible disaster between Cain and Abel, another child is born and Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Who's the driver there? God. It's part of this cycle that you'll see lived out over and over in God's people and in our own lives. Is we decide we're going to do it on our own. We ruin everything. We experience consequences. God redeems us. And we are humbled. That's the constant cycle of God's people. You see it through Israel's history. I see it through my personal history. I bet you'll see it through your history. I'm sure we'll see it through the history of our church. The cycle holds true here on the second generation. Verse 26, the final verse, the most hopeful thing in the whole chapter. 
a glimpse at another lineage that is carried through chapter 5. I won't read all of chapter 5. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So it ends on a hopeful note. And thus concludes the history of Cain and Abel. Ancient history preserved and given to us by God's inspiration in the Bible. So ask yourselves, what do you observe about God in this? What do you learn about our God and Father? There's a lot that could be said. The New Testament refers back to the story of Cain and Abel a handful of times. My first version of this sermon, I had every single one of those. And it would have added about 45 minutes from here. So I've, nailed, I've narrowed it to just one, even though much more could and should be said. One lesson to take away from this based on the New Testament's interpretation of the story. One lesson. Just because you do something for God doesn't mean he likes it. Just because you do something for God doesn't mean he likes it. Some offerings he regards and some he does not. Abel brought the firstborn and the fatty portions of his flock and God had regard for it. Cain brought the produce from the ground and God did not have regard for it. For us today, some of our acts of service and kindness and charity, the Lord will regard and some he will not. Some of our Endeavors as a church and as part of the church, God will regard and some he will not. So the question must be asked, what makes the difference? In the story, in Genesis 4, there's hints of it, but it's never stated explicitly because it's just a history, it's just a story. It's not a moral lesson. But thankfully, in this case, we have it stated explicitly in the New Testament. And we find it in Hebrews eleven four. And I'm just going to read it briefly. You can write it down, look at it later. It's not going to be projected. Or you can try to flip over there. It's Hebrews 11.4. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, by faith, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So what makes the difference? Why would he regard one and not the other? Faith makes the difference. What is faith? Well, I'll give you the definition right here in this chapter. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, just anything hoped for? Anything not seen? Down in verse 6, there's a little bit of a clarification. Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever, who, for who would ever, for whoever would, Draw near to God, must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, this is simple, fundamental stuff. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. What does that mean? It simply means believing that God exists. 
and rewards those who draw near to him. Something about the way Cain went about his offering showed to God that he didn't even believe in God, really. He did not approach God as God anyway. There is a way to worship and to try to be God's people that denies God's even actual existence. It is a unique form of atheism where the atheist doesn't even realize he's an atheist. And he's worshiping and he's serving and he's doing Christian-y stuff. But in such a way that it's as if he's denying that God exists at all. Now, I don't want this to be confusing. So look back at the life of Cain and let's try to gain some clarity here. How did he exhibit faithlessness in the way he operated? Well, when he was rejected by God, he did not respond with humility, but hostility. You cannot believe that God is God and turn hostile toward him rather than humble toward him. When God sought him, he did not respond with repentance, but instead by further hardening himself against his brother Abel. You cannot believe that God is God and ignore him seeking you and harden yourself toward your brother. When God confronted him after he killed his brother, he did not respond with confession, but with concealment. You cannot believe that God is God and think that you can conceal your sin. I don't know where my brother is. It is possible to worship God as though he didn't even exist. It's possible that we could be in here singing the songs that we sang. In our hearts, though, God might as well not exist. And it's a serious, serious threat to the church. Pretended worship is a serious, serious thing. So in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he basically says to them, after outlining for a whole chapter their hypocrisy, he says to them, you are are just like your father Cain, in so many words. You're just like your father Cain. So in modern day, you know, the the descendant of Cain in Genesis 4, Lamech, we saw what he looked like. What do the descendants of Cain look like in modern day? They look like really religious people. So I have a little self-examination for you to take based on Matthew chapter 3. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I would recommend it to you. But these are the accusations God the Son, Jesus Christ, levels at the scribes and Pharisees who he equates with Cain. And let this search your heart and see if there's any trace of Cain in you. First question, do you ever preach what you won't practice? Do you ever preach what you won't practice? Second question, Do you ever do good deeds for show? Do you ever do good deeds for show? Third question. Do you feel exalted in your religious status? Do you feel proud to be a deacon on the board, Sunday school teacher, part of a family line of ministers, whatever it may be? 
Question four. Do you ever obey in the admirable minutia of Christianity while disobeying in the main plain things of Christianity? What I mean by that is the Pharisees would tithe everything. When they got some spices to cook with, they would tithe 10% of their spices. And yet they ignored God's teaching about loving people. So they felt righteous because they were doing these sort of high-level religious things. But they weren't loving people. Is that ever true of you? Question five. Are you cleaner on the outside than you are on the inside? Are you cleaner on the outside than you are on the inside? And last question, number six. Do you appear more righteous to other people than you do to God who knows your heart? Do you appear more righteous to other people than you do to God who knows your heart? See, the truth is we are all Cain's descendants. Each and every one of us has Cain's disease running through our blood. We're born with it. Naturally trying to justify ourselves, naturally trying to look good to other people, naturally thinking we can cover over our sin before other people and be okay. But there's good news for the descendants of Cain, which I would count myself in. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground. And what did it cry out? It cried out condemnation for Cain. Cain murdered me. Jesus' blood cries out to God from the ground. And what does Jesus' blood cry out to Cain's like me? Forgive them, Father. He knows not what he does. Abel's blood brought condemnation. Jesus' blood brings cleansing, forgiveness, recreation, new heart. At the beginning, I asked you to write down or think about how to finish this sentence. God is pleased with me when I... And I wonder what came to your mind. I wonder if religious activities came to your mind when I read my Bible every day, when I go to church every week, when I'm nice to my brother and sister. I wonder what came to your mind. The answer from Scripture does not reside in any of those things that you can do. It resides in the blood of Jesus Christ. God is pleased with me when I believe in him and draw near to him through Jesus Christ. And that's it. If you will receive the cleansing forgiveness of Jesus' blood and be forgiven and made new by Jesus and just receive that, and in humility and repentance move toward God, he's pleased with you. And he loves you like a child, like a son, a daughter. He's pleased with you if you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, no amount of religious effort will ever gain his approval. No amount of religious effort will ever gain his regard. Because it will always be tainted with the contamination of Cain. And there's a lot of freedom here. You should just feel immediate freedom from any religious obligation. Immediate freedom from any religious obligation. You don't ever have to pretend. In fact, pretending is about the worst thing you could do. 
and know that our God is way more pleased with the poor widow's penny than the rich people pouring in loud stacks of cash because she's coming to him in humility through Jesus Christ. God is way more pleased with the filthy prodigal son than the dutiful older brother. God is way more pleased with Mary than Martha. We will just receive the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ and draw near to our Father in humility. He's pleased with us. God is pleased with me when I believe in him and draw near to him through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this history of Cain and Abel. Please forgive me and all of us when we act like Cain. And by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, we ask that you would free us from that contamination, that we would be freed to worship you in spirit and truth, to be people who genuinely love you and know you and never have to act like it. May we be a church of genuine worship in Jesus' name. Amen.